From regular expenses to occasional splurges, there's a lot to buy. Why not get cash back every time you spend? With the PenFed Power Cash Rewards Card, you get cash back on every purchase. That's everywhere, every time you use it. You can even earn a $100 statement credit when you spend $1,500 in the first 90 days. Visit PenFed.org slash PowerCash to apply. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. The available AKG 36-speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360-degree sound. Not just here or here, but everywhere. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Thanks for listening to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in American soccer. And don't forget to subscribe. Welcome, it's Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast. I'm Jake Watroba. Alongside of me is Armand Kafai down in Dallas. Stephen has the weekend off, uh, so we're looking I think for... think it's two weekends off. Two weekends off, so we're looking for replacements. We're going to have one replacement on later on in the show with a uh, writer, contributor for UncleSamSoccerPodcast.wordpress.com. Uh, Eric Langmack will be joining us here uh, later on in the show to discuss uh, the U.S. soccer coaching license controversy. You may have seen that on... Twitter. Twitter. Uh, and it was also on that. Was it SoccerAmerica.com? Is that what? Yep. So there, was that, there was that article that was up uh, a couple days ago. Uh, but Armand, how you doing? How was that uh, late uh, FC no, Dallas-Minnesota match? Terrible. It was terrible. No, it was terrible. Don't get that positive tone in your voice. It was awful. Uh, I, I sat through a two-and-a-half-hour rain delay. Uh, yeah, I mean, the clouds started coming in, and, we're, and everyone in the press box – just looked up and we're like, yep, we're going to go through that rain delay. So, I mean, we had that long rain delay, two hours. Got to watch a game. I think got done with everything. Like around one. Got some food. Uh, went to, uh, you know, got some In-N-Out. For, you know, y'all love some In-N-Out. And um, it was awful. I, I, I can't imagine watching it. I, uh, I talked to Callum, Callum Williams. <laughs> we were both just laughing about how terrible it was to – wait two and a half hours because there was talk that they might not even be able to play it tonight they'd have to play it Sunday and uh, yeah I wouldn't go back if I had to do that. let me ask you this what are uh, what are some of the activities you do when waiting for a or waiting through a, a weather delay as somebody in the media oh okay. so what so what do you do in the press box I guess so um, for a little bit uh, I watched some MLS action on ESPN plus uh, I think Vancouver and Red Bull is going on it's a really good game I think Red Bull tied up real late. Uh, then you go around and you start mingling with people. Uh, met a few people, uh, sat in on a couple of radio shows, uh, just talking to people here or there. Uh, like I said, just introducing yourself to some people in there that you may don't usually talk to because everyone's busy, but with two and a half hour range late, no one's busy. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty fun in the moment, and then you realize, oh, wait, we still have a game to do. So it gets pretty crappy, but... I mean, overall, it's just a bunch of mingling, just talking to people, seeing how they're how they're doing. You know, just, just normal journalism things, big day journalism <laughs> things. 
Well, okay, well, that sounds really exciting. So not no, like, card games or anything like that, just shooting the breeze no. with... Yeah, watching some USL. Oh, some FC Cincinnati. You know, one of the new expansion teams coming in. You got to get some researching, get some scouting in. Sure, sure. And I think that's a good that's a good point or a good place to segue here. Uh, speaking of expansion franchises, mm-hmm. uh, David Beckham's Miami MLS franchise released its logo, its name, and colors earlier this week. Uh, the club will be called uh, unofficially, I guess. It's been trademarked, so we're going to say it's unofficially official. Uh, International Club de Football Miami. Uh, with a colors scheme of black, white, and pink. And if you haven't seen the badge, it's a it's a very unique badge. I would say it's probably going to be the best looking badge, logo, crest, whatever word you want to use uh, in in the league. Uh, it features two herons, I believe, is the, are the birds. Yeah, two herons. Their legs are. Would you say crossed? Would be the. Would be I guess the... right. Like crossed into an M shape. Yeah, crossed into an M shape with uh, you know Miami above their head. It, it's very, it's very unique. I'm probably not doing a very good job of describing it, but it's definitely one of the more unique logos, not only in MLS but probably in, in North American sports. Uh, what what's your take on the the color scheme, the the, the logo itself? I know I wrote uh, for the site a couple weeks ago that Miami, with the colors and with the the name of the club and the logo, should do something that's very that feels very Miami like. Uh, I actually argued they should name the club Miami Vice SC <laughs> and, and do like a playoff of the the hit '80s TV show with the with the color scheme, the the neon uh, pink with the teal or sky blue, or whatever color it is. Uh, but this also feels very Miami. Do you agree? I love this badge. I think I'm in love with it because as a huge guy who cares about jerseys, Jake, as everyone knows. Uh, as a guy who cares about the branding of certain teams, I think they do an excellent job of capturing uh, Miami in a very modern and slick-looking way. And I think that's one of the most important things. It's very hip. I think this is something that you can see on polos. Um, I definitely love the color scheme of that pink and black. I think it's going to be very popular, you know, as a casual jersey to wear. Uh, kind of like, you know, the black, uh, the uh, I think it's the Blackhawks. Chicago, I see a lot of people wearing those uh, hockey jerseys. Um there, it's very. It, it has the potential to be very clean, very crisp. Uh, the heron. I mean, I thought it was a flamingo at first, to be honest with you. And then I realized uh, I did too yeah. until I saw Lexi Lawless yeah, say it was a heron. I'm like, hey, I think that is the state bird of Florida. Yeah, exactly. So the heron provides a very unique twist on it. Uh, I love the little. You know, there's like a crest in the crest. You know, like the big circle, and then like there's a crest of the Miami and the two herons in there, and then they they form the M. They embrace that pink, and I think that's really important because it, it has a chance to be like one of those jerseys. I know you see like uh, uh, like Waka Flocka Flame, uh, Two Chains. They always rock the Atlanta jerseys, the Atlanta United jerseys. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this has potential to be one of those jerseys in the rotation, especially with a lot of hip hop artists, uh, because it's just so clean. And it, I think, it does capture, uh, you know, part of the part of Miami, and I think it does a really great job. I'm just curious what the jerseys look like. If Adidas can ruin uh, these jerseys too, I'm gonna be really upset. Yeah, but I hope they don't because they have potential to be awesome. Yeah, no, I, I'll be definitely curious to see how how they incorporate the pink because there isn't a team in 
at least in the U.S., like the four major or five major now, uh, U.S. sports, I don't believe there's a team that wears pink as one of its primary colors. And unless... I think they saw the success of uh, my, the Miami Heats with the Miami Vice, and we're like, we can tap into that on a permanent basis. Oh, yeah, and that's what I even noted that, too, on the in the article, which those those Miami Heat jerseys were, were so clean. They were like, they were just per- Like, those were one of the best jerseys in, in the NBA last year. I'm kind of sad. They sold out. I'm sad. Yeah, they did. And you can't buy them anymore. Like, they got, they're not going to wear them this year uh, or, or for this upcoming NBA season. But I'll be curious to see, like you said, it, it's it's a very clean look. I think it'll be a popular look because the pink is unique. There's, like I said, there's no team in, in sports that has a pink. And it's not overly pink either. No, it's no. It's nice, it's a perfect, I guess, amount. Right. Uh, it, like, you know, like pink is for some reason perceived as a, uh, I guess, a feminine color, which I don't agree with. Um, and, you know, for those who are concerned about that, I guess, you they could still rock it if they're genuinely concerned about looking feminine, which I think is a completely different argument. But I, it's just a perfect amount. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate teams that use odd colors or maybe not commonly used colors in their jerseys, like the San Jose Sharks with that teal, the Miami Dolphins with that neon orange and green, or not green, but that teal green, um, instead of that the standard navy and red that you see most clubs using. But No, I agree. I agree. So, yeah. But, Armand, let's shift gears. Let's talk a little bit about uh, MLS in the quote-unquote 1.0 clubs and how they seem to be – struggling at least off the field in terms of attendance it's bad and when i looked at the miami crest it kind of just triggered me and uh the top to the some of the mls 1.0s and it's mainly the original teams and we throw chicago in there because they were like made like two years later but i mean i mean if you look at it chicago is looking pretty bad in terms of their eight straight loss uh, their coach, uh, uh, Valko Panovic, was asked, how do you feel about all this losing? And he goes, and he actually said, quote-unquote, stop asking me this. Uh, we're explicit suffering. Uh, you can fill in the blank. Um, and a lot of these teams are struggling on and off the pitch. It looks like Chicago, ugh, I mean, we, we've, we've talked about this off the record, Jake, but it looks like they're uh, – Looking very interesting in terms of, you know, burning the bridges with their supporters groups and that new USL team with Tom Ricketts coming in in 2020 with a giant stadium. Something, something might, something, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't look that good for the fire right now, especially if they're going to be hot garbage. Um, then you look at the Rapids, who I think they're hoping Kelna Costa came their attendant savior. Uh, I'm not sure is the best option. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, good luck, good luck with that. Uh, I mean, the Revolution still playing Gillette and uh, still, which I mean, is the second worst stadium situation outside of uh, NYCFCs, which we admit is pretty garbage. And they but still at least NYCFC is in the heart of New York. It's in downtown New right. York. It's not in Foxborough, which is 45 minutes outside of Boston, I think. I mean, Stephen can correct me on that one in a later, in a, in a future episode if he wants to, but it's smack dab in between Providence and, and Boston. It's It's like, it's not... For an MLS club, it's it's not the best location. No, it's it's not. And a lot of these MLS teams, these MLS 1.0s are struggling because MLS told them, hey, you should start building these suburbs because we want to attract those suburb, suburbia, suburban areas. And now um, it, we all know that's not the move. That That's not the best way to attract people to go to 
I saw a game in the FC Dallas and Frisco suburb. We, we can go we can go on and on through the list. I, I'd probably say half these teams have have that issue. I mean, Jake, my problem is these expansion teams are kind of, you know, keeping MLS up, and these MLS 1.0s are still like kind of the older uh, owners that you know MLS. If they were, if these owners were to start a team in MLS right now, I don't think they'd be. I don't think they'd buy into MLS right now. No, I think I think you're right. I think you're right, and I, you can even look to DC United right now too. They just opened up Audi Field, and I mean, I don't know I, how many home games have they had since it opened. The th- three or four, three or four, yeah. And they they I think they've single, I think, sold out one. That, yeah, that's ridiculous. I mean, for a club that for the better part of a decade has been asking for a soccer specific stadium and trying to get out of RFK, trying to get rid of or trying to get away from those quote unquote RFK raccoons. <laughs> um, <laughs> they can't sell out their 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 new stadium, and maybe that's because I mean I know there was inclement weather uh, a few weeks ago. I'm sure ticket prices are much higher than they were at RFK, which is understandable. But these MLS 1.0 clubs need like a breath of fresh air. Uh, they need a rebrand. They need something to get the fans excited. And I don't think the Bob uh, Robert Crafts or the Lamar Hunts of the world are going to be Hunts. Dan Hunt. Sorry, uh, are the owners to to do that? And now you can say, sure, they they helped save the league uh, when the the league desperately needed it, uh, you know, fifteen twenty years ago or whatever. But we're in a, it's not nineteen ninety nine anymore. <laughs> it's it's two thousand eighteen. Uh, you have these clubs in Atlanta. You have uh, or. Even Orlando, you have NYCFC, Seattle, Seattle Portland, Minnesota, uh, Toronto. LAFC, Toronto. I mean, even the Galaxy for original side. Galaxy and oh. K- Galaxy and Sporting KC do fine for for these MLS 1.0 clubs. And they and they have something similar, right? The Galaxy continue to bring in big name talent, and SKC went, on, went under a complete rebrand, and it's for the better. They've interacted with the community. And they look they look so good, and with all this, you know, MLS to Austin, which we'll also talk to uh, Chris Bills about. We we mentioned that um, all this MLS to Austin talk, Columbus moving, it has me thinking: who's next, Jake? Because someone else is next. MLS is trying to phase out some of these some some of these owners. I feel like, but who's next? Well, you I, hit on it a couple minutes ago about keeping your eye on Chicago. I mean. I, as crazy as that sounds, I get Chicago is a big market, third biggest market in the U.S. But you look at what the Ricketts have done. They own the Cubs. I mean, that's a pretty big name in Chicago. They're building a 20,000-seat stadium in downtown Chicago, or at least one of the, like, the, the neighborhoods in, in the city of Chicago. Uh, you look at that. You have this stadium out in, I believe it's Bridgeview. Bridgeview. Mm-hmm. Bridgeview, which sounds like it's a pain to get to, whether it's that's from... with. You know, via the train, now I'm not even sure if you can get to it via the train, but at least driving, it sounds like a pain. They just seem like the most likely option, and we can get into the Colorado Rapids, who are owned by Stan Kroenke, who has shown in the last couple of years he has no problem relocating a team to somewhere else, as he did yeah. with the St. Louis Rams to uh, relocate them to L.A. So I guess you could make an argument they could be next too, but in, in, to me, it just looks like with the Ricketts, Getting into USL, that's a huge name in Chicago. I mean, it, the Chicago Cubs are kind of the 
the crown jewel of Chicago sports. The, a USL team doesn't need a 20,000-seat stadium. I'm sorry. To me, uh, connecting dots that maybe shouldn't be connected. To me, though, that just seems like that's something that we should be keeping an eye on as we uh, move forward in the future here over the next couple of years. My thought process is, I mean, I was looking into it. I was like, how, li- how likely is it for them to move? There's, I, I, don't, I don't see them. If Chicago were to lose its team, uh, it would not come back in that form, the USL team, until, until that Bridgeview lease expires. There's no way. The, the lease uh, uh, manually state, uh, states that if an MLS team within 75 miles is to operate, it has to operate at Bridgeview. So there's no way that the USL Chicago team could become an MLS team for the foreseeable future. There's no way. And you, you say, oh, you can maybe buy out Bridgeview. Bridgeview knows that it has MLS by the balls. Like, they can do whatever they want. Uh, they can ask for a, they could ask for an exuberant amount of money, and they won't they won't lose sleep over it at all. Whoever did that lease is a genius. It's <laughs> on the real. They're they're a genius. But I think Chicago is next, Jake. I don't know to where though. The question is where where did you move? Would you move to Detroit if you were? Because I mean, it's kind of close proximity wise. You might keep that. Maybe not really. But you might keep some of that Chicago market. Maybe he wants to come to Detroit to watch a. Soccer. I don't know. I don't think. I, I. I. They're. They're so bad on the field right now. Off the field, they're pretty. Remember that playoff game, Jake? I don't know if you remember, where they had like ten thousand people at the at the match uh, against uh, who was it? The Red Bull was that last year? Yeah, Red Bull last year. Yep. <clears throat> the six three matchup. So bad. Um, I, I. You can make the argument Colorado. I mean, what have what have they done? I mean, I feel like MLS trying to phase out the bad owners. Um, and try to get some people who are going to invest. I mean, FC Dallas, no one, they don't have that much investment. They did invest in the Hall of Fame, but so what? That doesn't help the league. I don't R- think it does at all. Right, right. And yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think Chicago probably is the team to keep your eye on over the next couple of years in terms of relocating now, whether it's to Detroit or Sacramento or Phoenix or maybe even Columbus if the crew do move to Austin, and I think we'll get into that with with Chris later on here uh, about the potential of the crew staying in Columbus under new ownership and pre-court essentially getting an expansion, uh, getting an expansion franchise in a roundabout way. Um, I guess we'll have to, uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But uh, up next is uh, Eric Langmack, and after that we will be speaking with... uh, Chris Bills of the Austin American uh, Statesman. Joining us today uh, is contributing writer for Uncle Sam Soccer Podcast.wordpress.com. Him and I go way back to our days uh, in the, let's say, the Burnsville uh, soccer uh, youth setup. I don't really know how else to say it. <laughs> he's uh, he's Eric Langmack. He, he joins us today for the first time, making his Uncle Sam debut. How's it going? It's going good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we uh, go way back um, playing with the, the fifth grade Bernie Monkeys with that big orange hammer. I- I forgot. I forgot. 
the good old days. I forgot all about that. The uh, yeah, the Bernie monkeys. That was our uh, that was our name. Which <laughs> thinking, looking all the way to the title. <laughs> looking back at that now, I I that's that is one of the dumbest names I think I've ever heard for a team, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today uh, we're going, or for, for this segment at least, we're going to be discussing the USSF coaching license controversy. Uh, yesterday, American uh, or SoccerAmerica.com released an article uh, interviewing Ryan Mooney and Nico. I hope I said this last name right. Ro- Romine, is that right? Does that sound right, guys? Sounds about right. Close enough. Close enough. We're going to roll with it. it. Uh, Nico Romine. uh, Nico is the chief sporting development officer, and Ryan is the chief uh, soccer officer. In the interview, they get asked various questions as to why does – why are coaching licenses necessary within U.S. soccer? They go into uh, details about – the diversity within the, the the coaching ranks. Did did either of you have a chance to read this article? I did, Jake. I did, and I I didn't like it to be quite honest with you. It kind of, it there was a bunch of answers in there. Uh, I forgot there was one specific one that it was a whole bunch of nothing. You know, it's just a bunch of you know just words scrambled together uh, in order to like have like. I guess like a big effect, like oh, you know all this. And rally was just. I think it shows the article at least how incompetent USSF still is, even after we just had those elections for what we thought would be uh, some sort of change. But I think we still got the same incompetent USSF. Eric, did uh, did you did you get a chance to skim over the article? What were your general thoughts about it? Yeah, I would I would echo with Armand. I've been thinking about it after reading that and some other um, tweets that have been going throughout um, the U.S. soccer landscape, even um, lower level players um, that are echoing that there's an issue with the setup. Um, and I think it, it does come back, and this is going to sound way out of left field, but um, from my own previous coaching experience, I think it comes down to having something to do with like how MLS and just U.S. soccer structure as a whole is set where there's not a you know an up or a down it's just like oh you're an mls coach okay great you're an mls coach you can get hired um and like oh if you want to become a um, b level certified you have to be part of the development academy and stuff like that just setting unnecessary barriers where um, you know if you wanted to work your way up you had to have an in somewhere some sort of special treatment to be able to um, advance rather than doing it on your own merit or skills. Now, now, like Eric said, and like the article said too, there are uh, boundaries or limitations to what you can uh, accomplish in regards to getting these licenses. Do you think this, these uh, requirements are holding back U.S. soccer right now? Armand, we'll start with you. Yes, uh, I think they they are because I think we are lacking um, – I guess good coaches within uh, U.S. soccer. I know there's plenty of people who want to be good coaches, but it's kind of tough when, in order to get your uh, a B li- uh, a B license and above, you have to be working with a DA. There's only a limited amount of DAs in 
U.S. U.S. soccer. I mean, there's also a lot of other things that are holding back U.S. soccer as a whole. But I think coaching is a key part of it. I feel like there's not that many. I guess there's some good American coaches out there, but then again, there's also some not good ones. I mean, who do we think is the best coach in MLS right now? I mean, record-wise, you'd probably say it's Tata Martino, who's Argentinian, and you have Oscar Pereja uh, in the West, who's uh, Colombian. I mean, the American coaches are there, but at the same time, it's so tough to get all these licenses. You got to take time out of your uh, time out of your own life. You got to get your funds. It's an expensive thing. So, I mean, I do think it's holding us back, Jake. And there has to be a better way because if in other countries, it's cheaper relative to what you have to pay in the United States. Yeah, I would agree. And I think I don't know if it was you who made this point off air. How and I don't want to turn this into a promotion relegation discussion because I feel like that that could really uh, yeah really get us on a tangent. But essentially, how I believe your point was, if we had promotion relegation, it would let the the best of the best rise to the top rather than having these people jump through all these hoops and pay all these. That's mentioned too. We didn't even get onto fees and how much it costs to uh, get get one of these licenses but you you made the point that promotion relegation would maybe help solve these issues maybe not entirely but it it could help solve a little bit of the issues i mean the fact is that you, you can't that you can't advance past the unless you're a da uh, it's, a, it's a little bit ridiculous uh, eric i know you're the coach here what, what do you think about that <laughs> so i actually think that um you're actually not too far off in that I know it seems kind of far-fetched, but um, just so that listeners have an idea, I have um, a Minnesota youth coaching license, not one through USSF, um, from several years back when I coached um, both competitive club teams as well as high school. Um, and one of the things that I would notice and that I was brought into, especially the club team, was there's a, there's a promotion relegation system even in our youth soccer setups. And so, like, aside from making the players better as players um, with their tactics and their skills, like my goal was to help them as a team get up to the next level so they could then entice even better players from neighboring cities to come play with them. And so I think too many coaches are, have to focus on the winning aspect because that's what parents want, that's what kids want, and that's kind of what's set up before them. And so I think if that's, gonna, if that's the setup of the youth system down to the state and local level, um, and the capping of it, so to speak, once you get to, um, you know, any type of professional league and obviously college, you don't go up or down either. There's not anything else that replicates it. And so coaches are forced to go for results rather than actually developing players with their skills and their tactics um, to be better. And so I think they actually go more hand in hand than some people may admit just because, um, that's the, the focus of the coaches is to get results while developing players rather than let's develop players that are 12. Whether they win or lose does not really matter. Now, the the other key point in the article that I, I kind of wanted to touch on here as well was uh, a, a quote from Ryan Mooney, who is the chief soccer officer with uh, U.S. Soccer uh, Mooney was asked about the number of Latinos in the national team set up for both uh, boys and girls. Uh, this, is, this was essentially Rooney's uh, 
part of Rooney's answer about that. I share very I share very openly that we have an active recruiting efforts to try and reach more diverse applicant pools, and we have found that many times, very unfortunately, that the interest is not there for the opportunity or the job we have to offer. If I remember correctly from the article, there is one uh, Latino coach in the national team setup right now. With all these fees uh, associated with getting your licenses, does this not does this does that not echo why this is an issue? Why there aren't you I mean, basically a, have a bunch of old white dudes or who are who are uh, <laughs> coaches within U.S. soccer? It's elitist. I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but it's, yep. it's elitist. It's uh, look, look. If you go through all the requirements, because uh, I. I was looking to potentially get a couple badges here or there. Uh, I was looking through it, and man, you have to. I, I think when he gets to your C, you gotta take four to six weeks off, or go to like you know some on-site training for around four to six weeks, um, either your C or B, and then you have to pay. And then you, you you probably you probably won't find one. Like I know in the Dallas area, it's very difficult to find uh, an in-person class. Like sometimes you might have to go to Tyler, uh, which is a couple hours out, or uh, something uh, somewhere along those lines or like maybe even like a neighboring state I guarantee you not all 50 states offer uh, you know coaching classes and what I mean if you probably want to advance I there probably isn't any in Alaska I mean let's be real <laughs> like there probably isn't that many in, in Alaska cause, I mean there's no one around there so I mean they probably have to fly out invest money and it, it is elitist it's like made for the people in power to stay in power and for them to you know not 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 let it up at all i mean it's it's just there's so much uh what is it uh i can't think of the word bureaucracy yeah bureaucracy yeah it's just it's so elitist and i don't i don't know why we have that why don't we want to uh have a culture that we have coaches you know that 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 come up and that want to help u.s soccer i mean from what i've seen all the coaches want to do they don't care about the money or anything they just want to help u.s soccer as a whole and hope for the sport to advance but instead, we should have a bunch of, you know, grumpy, you know, men who just want to control, uh, just consolidate their power and control it and not let anyone else go through. I don't, I don't know, Eric, do you feel the same way? Yeah, very much so. Um, I have seen some um, Twitter rants throughout, and there's this guy um, out in Virginia, I believe, who he's 26, single, unmarried, and he's saved up for a couple years so that he can try and go through these course and license and to get to his B he's actually volunteering at a development academy just so he can have that association so that he can get to his B license now he's only two years younger than me so I'm 28 um I have a wife I have a three almost four year old daughter um you know so I have to provide for them there's no way that I can take off even you know a couple weekends to go to Kansas City or down to Houston. Um, I'm in Dallas um, as well, um, near Armand, or over to New Orleans or wherever you have to go to travel. Um, that's money that we just don't have. And so I'm, you know, if I wanted to coach again, I'm stuck in that pickle of I can't, you know, I either have to give up my job or sacrifice time for my family or do something I can't, you know, advance myself in that way because of the situation that I'm stuck in. And that's not even getting to, and you guys, especially Eric, and less so me, because I haven't really looked into it all that much, but 
you guys aren't even factoring in the cost that is associated with taking these tests or taking these courses to get your license. I think I saw an estimation. I was looking on someone's tweet. It might have been uh, Hercules Gomez's tweet uh, about uh, Latinos not having interest in coaching within USSF. Uh, essentially, the I think one one person tweeted him that the estimation was right around ten to fifteen thousand dollars, and that might not have even in, included travel costs. I mean, at that at that point, it seems like you're you're, you're limiting you're basically limit, limiting who can take these courses, and it almost it's almost a microcosm of the issues that face U.S. soccer within the the, the talent pool within the national team. It, it, soccer has has become worldwide. It's 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 associated with uh, poor countries or poor communities. You only need a ball to play, but in America, you need these thousands upon thousands of dollars to join these teams or these clubs or or, or whatever. And a lot of a lot of people can't afford it. Yo, you're you're spot on, Jake. I mean, I was talking to a uh, a parent actually. Of a kid that that's playing, and he was telling me the costs around you know three thousand, and that's not including you know uh, first kid to play. Uh, that's not including you know playing a hotel. I mean, you probably fly New Jersey every single year because you know the kid's growing. Um, all, all these all these you know little little things. I mean, I kind of ran about it on Twitter a little bit, but I mean it's kind of hard to find a a park with goals uh, at least in the Plano Frisco area, which is I guess more. Uh, middle, more upper middle class than anything. So you can't, it's very tough for, uh, you know, I, I would say many people to find an open uh, soccer field uh, with goals in place to, to play. Um, it, if you're, if you're on the, you know, the lower income uh, side of things, I think it's very tough for you to get into soccer unless you, you get, I guess, uh, these words get lucky and you get, you kind of get noticed by someone who, is a part of these free DAs, such as, you know, in Dallas, I think Red Bull has a free DA as well, and then they can help you out from there. Because I, outside of that, I, it's, it's tough. I mean, even high school soccer, it's kind of neglected, right? Because I know uh, my old high school was playing on turf that was like 10 to like 12, 13 years old, and people were almost, uh, their feet were getting caught in the turf. It's, and it's, and it's, very, it's very neglected as well, even though a lot of the costs are covered. You still have just it, it, it's tough I, I don't know it's tough and not a lot of I guess colleges really care that much about high school soccer anymore it's more all about looking at the DAs to recruit from there uh to improve their programs I mean that's I think the cost is a uh, barrier of entry uh for many and I think you're right Jake it is it's an issue that we don't just see on the coaching level that we see almost across all of U.S. soccer yeah and and, and you know, wrapping up here, um, what do you? So we have you know we have Carlos Cordero now. He's now the new president of U.S. Uh, U.S. Soccer. Do you, do you guys envision that he will do anything to maybe lower the cost or make the the requirements to get your license uh, a little less strict, or is this going to be the same old U.S. Soccer and? eight to 12 years from now, we're still going to be talking about these issues. Eric, you want this one I first? Think, yeah, go yeah, for it. I'll go I think that uh, it, there might be some improvement, but I would say probably on the negligible side of things. I mean, Cuadrado, you know, he's not new to U.S. soccer. He's not, you know, coming from 
out of left field, so to speak, to kind of help change U.S. soccer. He was, you know, within the setup already. He, you know, has ideas, but I think because he's, I don't want to say ingrained, but he's been involved with it so much that it just becomes a status quo. And until there's either a major push, which I wouldn't even say all of this recent, you know, information with articles and people on Twitter, um, I don't think that is necessarily going to be enough, but I think it could potentially, if Ernie Stewart has, you know, starts to push some on that, how much that is in part of his new position, I don't know, or if there's a new, um, the new coach that comes in, if that kind of has some sort of trickle down effect, but I don't see too much of a change uh, coming from Cordero. I don't either. I don't either, Eric. I, I I really don't because I don't think he needs to make that much changes to even stay in power. He needs to do just you know certain things. Like we saw the technical director spot get opened up. I mean, what is that really? Do we actually know? Uh, it seems nope. like we we have no idea what it is. It just got hired. I I don't think we'll see that much change at all because the way U.S. Soccer thinks about it is everything is going fine. We have players. Right now in the DA, they're going to Europe. Um, I think Europe is noticing that the American market is very undervalued, especially with the lack of a compensation system. So they can just poach and go. Um, I, I, I would say that they probably think that people still probably think that the 2018 missing the World Cup was a fluke. And that was, you know, a once in a 30 year thing and it won't happen again. Um, and it's I think it's a state of complacency that we're, that we're in, even though. So even though it's even though we've we've start seeing that you know in MLS especially it's very tough for domestic players to crack uh, the 18, especially the domestic young players because I mean they're probably just not good enough at this stage compared to some of the other players that are being uh, brought in. I think U.S. soccer as a whole is not going to change as much. Uh, like I told Jake, I would not be surprised if Dave Sarakan was our coach going into the next World Cups, going into the next World Cup because I mean he's getting all this nice public press and it seems like every single time there's a rumor that U.S. soccer is talking to, you know, like a Juan Carlos Osorio or like, you know, a Sampioli, it's all just it's shut down immediately. So, I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, Sarah Kim might be the guy who stays. I don't know, but I don't see any changes, Jake. I mean, what, what do you think about it? Uh, I'll leave you guys with, with this quote from our, our good friend, Sunil Gulati. You don't make wholesale changes on a ball. Was it on a ball that goes two inches wide? Is that is that what, what the quote was essentially? Yeah, two inches wide, right? Because they hit the post when Clinton hit the post at Trinidad. Yeah, they're not. I, I, I don't envision <laughs> changes. I don't. My my whole take on Carlos Cordero is he's just more the same, obviously. So I don't foresee anything uh, changing with. Uh, U.S. soccer or the licensing for that matter. So uh, with that, uh, Eric, where can we find your work? Uh, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, this is our shameless plug. You get to do it. This is this is your chance to do the shameless plug. Big big day for awesome. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks guys so much for having me uh, first time um, on the podcast. You can find me um, writing for Uncle Sam Soccer Podcast. WordPress.com. Twitter um, at Eric Langmack. Um, find that attached on the or at least how to spell that properly because that's an issue um on the website uh, eric langmack so definitely come check out i'm always retweeting and responding and uh, interacting with people i definitely have plenty of opinions um, so come interact and uh we'll have some fun all righty thanks a lot eric
Yeah, no problem. Thanks, guys. Sam's Soccer Podcast is freelance reporter for the uh, Austin American Statesman, uh, Chris Bills. Chris, how you doing? I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. We're doing well. Oh, Austin, it was a long day yesterday <laughs> uh, <laughs> with the uh, FC Dallas-Minnesota delay. So, oh, yeah. yeah that was, was um, it was pretty rough, to say the least, uh, especially when you're there waiting two and a half hours in the press boxes. Waiting for the, that game to start. I know, Jake, you were watching on TV. Uh, you probably fell asleep at some point, right? Uh, I got sick of watching <laughs> Minnesota play, so I just turned... Uh, yeah, I tuned off. I, I turned it off at the end of the first half, so... I, I don't blame you. That, that game went on way too late. Um, but outside of that, we're doing well. Uh, I know, Chris, you've been a really busy guy for the last few weeks. I mean, honestly, the last basically year... With all this Austin stuff, can you just give us an update on what what uh, happened this week in terms of uh, MLS to Austin? Yeah, it's crazy to think that it's uh, that it's been almost a year, and uh, and really, um, you know, this is the first. Uh, I don't want to say the first. There's been you know there's been a steady stream of news as you guys know uh, since last October. But uh, as far as what Precourt Sports Ventures and uh, you know the investor operator of the Columbus crew, Anthony Precourt, as far as what they've been trying to get done uh, in Austin, uh, locating a stadium site and getting it agreed uh, agreed upon. Um, they finally got that done this week. On Wednesday, the Austin City Council agreed uh, to uh, terms that would, uh, you know, that would allow uh, Precourt Sports Ventures to build a stadium on uh, city-owned land uh, in North Austin, Uh at a site called um, Macala Place. Uh, so um, the next, uh, well, I, I guess we'll just leave it there. That um, so that's what Precourt Sports Ventures has been trying to get done, and and uh, they they finally did. Um, and so that should open the door for there to be an MLS team um, here as soon as next spring. Now, Chris, you had uh, mentioned offer that you are from the state of Ohio. Uh, can you give us your personal thoughts on just everything with Save the Crew and MLS to Austin as far as just the, the divide between the two cities uh, and the MLS side of things? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been a long 10 months of uh, hearing both sides, and I, I definitely do hear uh, both sides as far as, uh, you know, living here in Austin, uh, seeing how every, everybody how, uh, you know, how everybody's processing everything and, and uh, the excitement around a potential MLS team. And then hearing from, from back home and hearing from, uh, you know, the, the Save the Crew folks and, um, you know, the movement they've, they've had, it's obviously generated quite a bit of attention locally and, uh, and nationally and, and even internationally. But, uh, you know, there's obviously still a lawsuit to play out in Ohio. And uh, I think it's interesting that uh you know after all this time the the vote finally came down and and there's uh you know there's certainly some um pessimism 
coming from some people in Columbus, but a lot of people feel still confident in what they've what they've done and and that there might be a solution to be had um, in Columbus, even if uh, you know even if the crew ends up moving uh, moving to Austin. So I guess um, you know I don't know if that really answers your question, but uh, I definitely have been hearing and trying to report both sides and all sides of uh, of this story. Overall, Chris, um, me and Jake and Steven on the show have talked about uh, how MLS kind of just lets the you know 1.0 franchises kind of just you know do their own thing, while the expansion franchises such as Seattle, I think uh, to Toronto, Atlanta, especially, have all I guess risen up and become just uh, powerhouses. But off the field, we see majority of the MLS, I guess, quote-unquote, 1.0 uh, teams struggle with attendance, uh, marketing, and sometimes even on the field. Do you think the league should uh, potentially do something to kind of help out these MLS 1.0 sides, or should they or should they try to, you know, maybe phase out the bad owners? I don't know. What, what, do you think the league should do something to help out these sides? Well... No, I don't know if I have an answer to that question per se, but I do think it's interesting how Major League Soccer has handled uh, this situation uh, with the Columbus crew. And, um, you know, this big vote happened uh, on Wednesday and there were celebrations in in Austin, um, you know, celebrating the arrival of potentially the city's first uh, major league sports franchise. Meanwhile, the league has yet to to comment on on the vote or or what it means from from a league level. At the end of the day, they they own the teams. Uh, you know, they get to decide what happens. Um, but uh, and you know, judging from the reaction from Anthony Precord on Wednesday, um, it sounds like there's going to be a team in Austin. But we still haven't heard that from the league level. Um, and so it is interesting how they I think how they've handled. Uh, this particular situation, we haven't, you know, other than a few comments from Don Garber when he uh, is in interviews with uh, with other media or national media, I should say, um, and this is obviously a topic that comes up. We haven't heard from the, the league level about how they're processing things and, and uh, you know, what role they're going to take um, in potentially moving the Columbus crew or, um, you know, maybe um starting a you know a new team in austin um it sure looks like I mean, it sure looks like they're going to move, move the columbus crew if they can but this lawsuit in ohio i think has kind of tied their hands as far as uh speaking about the situation and uh what their what their actual plans are and hey chris that's that's a good uh good point to uh, i guess want to touch on about the Law, uh, a pending lawsuit in the in the state of Ohio with the Modell law. Do you, is there an update on that that you're aware of? Well, there's going to be a hearing on September 4th, I believe, to 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 um, discuss the the motion from Precourt and MLS, uh, the motion to dismiss the lawsuit. Um, that will be the first public hearing uh, of this lawsuit. So the first time that we'll publicly should get to hear from uh, hear from the parties and, and uh, kind of hear what they have to say. Uh, so that's, the, that's the next move uh, as far as the lawsuit goes. Um, just, uh, you know, I will say from, from the Austin perspective, I don't think it's really dampened the mood a whole lot. I think there's an understanding among Austin uh, soccer fans that, uh, 
you know, they've been told that if they got the stadium site that there would be a, a team here next spring, uh, still waiting to find out where the temporary site might be. But, uh, you know, people and, and even pre-court sports ventures seems to be moving along uh, business as usual um, with with that plan. Uh, and we'll see what announcements they have coming out uh, and presumably the MLS will allow them to make. I heard Dell Diamond was one of the uh, temporary uh, venue options they had. Is that, is that true? Yeah, Dell Diamond is. Uh, it's looking like maybe the most viable option at the moment. Uh, UT has still remained fairly quiet. Chris Del Conte told uh, our statesman columnist Kirk Bowles uh, that there haven't been any serious discussions between the university and uh, Precourt Sports Ventures about um, about playing at either uh, DKR, Daryl K. Royal Memorial Stadium, where the Longhorns uh, football team plays, or at Mike A. Myers, the 20,000-seat soccer and and track venue that uh, it seems would be um, the most central location um, that would fit uh, with uh, natural grass and everything that they would need. Um, Other than there's no luxury boxes and things like that, which could be a potential snag, but... um, uh, it looks like Dell Diamond might be might be the spot if uh, if UT I mean UT gets to s- decide what they want to do, right? It's it's their venue and um, they don't uh, they don't they certainly don't need the money. Chris, I'm gonna put on my uh, tinfoil hat here and uh, we were uh, me and Armand and uh, Stephen, who's out of town right now, we're discussing this earlier this morning. Uh, I thought there was an interesting quote in your piece for the Statesman uh, this past week, I believe it was on Thursday, uh, from Josh Babetsky, who is the head of MLS in Austin. Uh, He was quoted as saying, it's been a long uh, five-year plan from crazy guy with a Twitter account through this movement that we started this whole, from this movement that we started to this whole supporters group to today. This obviously being after the uh, Austin City Council approved uh, the uh, McCullough place. Uh, Anthony Precourt became an investor in the crew five years ago on July 30th, 2013. Is there a connection between these two uh, that we're not aware of, or am I connecting dots that shouldn't be connected? You know, I, I'm gonna you. I think those dots can't be can't be connected because um, look. Josh, you know, Josh and I have talked about this in length, some on the record, some off the record um, about, um, you know, what he knew and when. Um, And he still hasn't really told me exactly. But, uh, you know, Josh, Josh moved from um, from the New York area here in 2013. He uh, was a fan of the Philadelphia Union um, and uh, was really interested in what Sons of Ben did to uh, to to attract that team, and so he was trying to do something similar in Austin. Um, if you trace back and, and look at you know what he's written over the years, um, I, I mean it's been a lot of speculation and a lot of things that that would not lead you to believe he knew anything about um, the Columbus Crew. And then in February of 2017, he wrote a blog. Uh, saying that the Columbus crew could move to to Austin. Obviously, that was uh, eight months before the you know it went public, uh, and so a lot of people have tried to trace that back and wonder, um, you know, if Josh knew anything. Now, you, the thing that you have to understand is that Josh was following 
the potential of there being MLS in Austin a lot more closely than anybody else was for a long time. And so there might have been some breadcrumbs there, some people, business people that we've heard that, uh, you know, there was a focus group that was done um, in, I believe, late 2016 or early 2017, um, you know, around the same time that uh, Precourt Sports Ventures put out a survey um, in Columbus about a, a new stadium. And so that, the, those those wheels were starting to move and nobody really knew it. And and obviously Josh had had some knowledge and, and heard some things. But to trace that all the way back to 2013, I don't think I don't think uh, I just haven't seen the proof to, proof in the pudding to to believe that. And when Josh says a five-year plan, he's talking about his plan. He wanted to attract a team here. His plan was expansion. Uh, and this just happened to, to fall in Austin's lap. And, and obviously as somebody who wants MLS in Austin, he was happy to jump on, jump on the bandwagon and, uh, and, and support that. Um, and so I think, you know, that's the that's the backstory there. If you guys have more questions, obviously you might want to get Josh on uh, to answer those, or uh, you know, if so. Um, but that's that's my understanding of Josh Bubetsky. Um, and believe me, I've had those questions and, and asked him point blank about those things. And and uh, to my knowledge, he didn't know anything before about maybe late 2016 and and uh, into February when he wrote that blog in 2017. And Chris, we we all know about the USL team uh, that just came in the Austin uh, Italics. Uh, no, no, the Austin Bold. We all know it's Austin <laughs> Bold. Let's see, but um, first off, I have no idea what they're doing with that name. But um, what what do you think is going to happen with them? I mean, I know they want to play, um, but they're not the top soccer dog anymore. And it's... well, look, they're going to play. They're, I mean, they launched their brand. They've got jerseys. They've, they've got a few players. They've signed all their players to multiple year contracts. Uh, they're ready to go, and they're going to have a stadium built out at, at Coda. Um, and uh, you know, they're going to launch that thing. Um, and so, you know, assuming things go according to plan with with pre court, there's going to be two professional soccer teams in Austin where there haven't been any for. Uh, for three years. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be, uh, you know, <laughs> I think somebody said, uh, this morning I was on the throw and they said, uh, we haven't had any soccer here and now we've got soccer up to our eyeballs, uh, pro soccer that is. So, um, you know, it's definitely an interesting time to be a soccer uh, fan or soccer interested in, uh, in Austin. Chris, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Um, go ahead and pl- uh, tell the listeners, where they can find your work and where they can find you on Twitter. Sure. Yeah. Follow me at Chris bills, uh, for any updates, uh, you know, in Austin and, and, uh, potentially in Columbus, uh, and, uh, read, uh, myself and Kevin Lytle on statesman.com. We'll, we'll have you covered, uh, for, um, any, any soccer that happens, uh, happens in the capital city in Austin. Perfect. Thank you so much, Chris. Right, thanks guys. again to Chris Bills for his time again today, providing some wonderful insight into what is going on with the MLS2 Austin and uh, the Save the Crew movement. Uh, Armand, what was your biggest takeaway from his uh, from his interview? 
Well, I mean, it feels like the Columbus crew are finally going to move to Austin. I mean, that's what it, the, that's what it feels like. I mean, I don't think the Model Law will will uh, actually, you know, maybe it will, but I don't think it will cause any uh, anything to happen. And I think we'll be seeing Austin play in sadly another baseball stadium in twenty in twenty nineteen because they they seem to not want to negotiate the hard stuff with uh, UT. So. We're going to be seeing the crew playing at baseball stadium for two, two, I guess two seasons before that stadium at McCullough Place is made. I mean, it's not ideal to see them play at Dale Diamond, but I think it's the only thing that they're going to do. And I guess yay for another baseball soccer stadium, huh? I mean, yeah, so that'll be the new trend. That'll be that'll be gross having to watch oh, terrible. another team play on a baseball uh, stadium. Uh, uh, the other thing I thought was interesting too, maybe not so much for the interview, but just the fact that Precourt is making promises that this team, oh, there will be an MLS team in Austin starting next season, when we haven't even figured out what's going to go on with the uh, court cases in the state of Ohio that are, you know, hope. I guess if you're a Crew fan, that's hoping to block the move of the Crew to Austin. So at that point, I mean, it sounds like Precourt well, could be making well, some promises yeah, that yeah. maybe you can't keep. So my my thought process is this. They're probably going to keep all the Columbus stuff in Columbus and start a new team from scratch, I guess, in Austin. So are they really moving the crew or is it like – or there might be like a workaround. Like am I, am I wrong for thinking that? I, th- I think that – I've seen people talk about that, that that's a potential that he could Precourt could sell sell the crew to a local investor and start a new team in Austin, which doesn't – if you're one of these uh, ownership groups vying for an expansion franchise in Phoenix or Sacramento or you know wherever, I would think that makes you pretty upset that this city that wasn't even being considered for expansion is now all of a sudden leapfrogging you mm-hmm. because they're going to have a stadium built in two years. Whereas the infrastructure's there in Sacramento, you can argue the infrastructure's there in San Antonio. Why all of a sudden? Because Precourt can get a stadium built in was it 2021. Why all of a sudden th- th- does Austin take precedence over uh, those other expansion franchises? Um, and I guess you could argue maybe there is some collusion too there with Precourt being on the expansion <laughs> committee. So... Uh, a lot of a lot of interesting things uh, to keep keep your eye on here over the next couple of months as we get the whole save the crew MLS to Austin thing figured out. Uh, but go ahead and follow us on Twitter at UncSamSoccerPod at ArmandKafai at JakeWatroba at Stephen Jodorand. We'll talk to you guys next week. The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360 degree sound, not just here or here, but everywhere. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving. The in-dash OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving.